Well, sounds good. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! the stinking paws podcast it's a very special edition of the stinking paws podcast because i haven't got charlie i haven't got paul with me this week it's early on a sunday morning which is usually the time i record real britannia so as as you know tradition dictates stephen from real britannia is with me hello mate hello yes i've just turned up by default so (laughs) expected a real britannia And also a regular guest on Real Britannia and Stinking Paws now as well. It's Anthony. Hello. Hello, everybody. Looking forward to this one. Uh, who chose it? It was you, wasn't it? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Back in the land of Hitchcock. It is another Hitchcock. Now, didn't you choose mm. Rope as well previously? I'm uh, pretty sure I did, yeah. So Farley Granger again. Farley well. Granger killing people. There's a bit of a theme going on here, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Still not much charisma either. <laughs> <laughs> we had quite... An extensive conversation, guys, didn't we, about Hitchcock last time and our love of the great man and the movies and and just sort of all things Hitchcock in general. I mean, I don't want to go too deep into it, but this one, Strangers on the Train, 1951, where does it stand with you guys? Because for me, it's not one of my turn-tos. It's not a psycho or a rear window, which are the, you know, or To Catch mm. a Thief, which are the ones I normally love to re-watch. And I probably haven't seen this for about four or five years. So, Strangers on a Chain, generally, for you two guys. Yeah, it's funny. It's sort of a high second-tier Hitchcock almost, isn't it? it mm. It's very good. I think it's very good, and I enjoyed, re- enjoyed re-watching it. But, yeah, it's not quite up there, perhaps. I don't know. It's probably about six or seven for me. That's still then I, I Then yeah. I forget ones. That, yeah, but then I forget his films unless I actually look at the list so he made about 50 in the end didn't he something like that yeah yeah but yeah. I haven't seen a lot of the early British ones but probably seen about 30 of them yeah maybe yeah 10 maybe cool about okay. 10. Stephen yourself mate I mean one of your regular turn twos or again is it sort of a second tier that you go to every now and no, again no I, f- I think Anthony's encapsulated it really well there that it's high second tier mm. um it's not pushed, uh, uh, you know, down a list due to the fact that there's any flaws in it as such um, that, you know, stop it from being a film that's worth watching. It's just, as you say, it, it doesn't quite, you know, sit in the same feeling as, as you have with North by Northwest or, or Vertigo mm. or, or any of those that you would... OK, they're, they're the ones that are more well-known in a way and the mm. ones that you're more likely mm. to, to catch being in either, you know, on television or special screenings or in a dvd box set that's part of the reason behind it but no i mean i i've seen this less than the number of other films and maybe that's a, a another part of the equation with regards to why it's not one of the ones that i instantly think of um mm. because it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy i don't turn to it 
as much because I haven't previously turned to it as much. <laughs> um, you know, I agree with, with what Anthony said there as far as you know perfectly that it's 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 high second tier. Yeah. Um, but you know, it doesn't quite breach into the uh, the top tier. Okay. Yeah. Well, I said about Farley Granger. I don't think he's bad, but uh, it's interesting. It's the second one we've done. It's the second time he's been. Um, playing almost a straight man to yeah. someone who I think is a bit more charismatic or mm-hmm. a bad guy, basically. It was John Dahl, wasn't it, right? Yeah. No, I really enjoyed this, actually. It's, so it's not perfect. There's nothing particularly wrong with it at all. It's uh, probably not that famous, weirdly enough. No. If you ask someone who's a casual Hitchcock fan to name 10 films, it probably wouldn't be in there. Absolutely. As you say, yeah. it's, it's, it's that in-between period before literally just after this or mid 50s going into you know up to 1960s or the cut off point at psycho yeah. uh where yeah. you get the peak tell you what we'll do let's take a break we'll play the trailer it's 1951 it's alfred hitchcock strangers on a train back after this trailer i beg your pardon aren't you guy haynes my name is bruno bruno anthony want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder, two fellows meet accidentally. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Crisscross. I may be old-fashioned, but I thought murder was against the law. You think my theory's okay, Gary? You like it? Sure, bro. Sure. Now, everything didn't go smoothly. She doesn't want the divorce. But you sound so savage, Guy. Sure, I sound savage. I feel savage. I'd like to break a neck. Now, who did you say this is? Bruno guy. Bruno Anthony. Don't you remember? On the train. Is your name Miriam? Right here. Are you trying to tell me? Why, oh, you maniac! But, guy, you want it! There seems to be no way of diplomatically breaking tragic news. It concerns your wife. She's been murdered. Miriam murdered? She was strangled. You're just as much in it as I am. We planned it on the train. Crisscross. How did you get him to do it? He's a maniac. I met him on the train going to Medcalf, and now a lunatic wants me to kill his father. Bruno, I've decided to do what you want. I still think it would be wonderful to have a man love you so much he'd kill for you. Well, then am I correct, Mr. Haynes, in assuming that you have no intention of going ahead with our arrangement? None whatsoever. I don't like to be double-crossed. I have a murder on my conscience, but it's not my murder, Mr. Haynes. It's yours. I'm not going to shoot you, Mr. Haynes. I'll think of something better than that. Much better. You better keep on your toes. Something funny's going on. Guy Haynes is taking chances I've never seen him take. Excuse me, madam. I need your help. We're chasing a man. Haynes, hold! Okay, that's Strangers on a Train, released in the UK 1951, directed, of course, by Alfred Hitchcock, starring Farley Granger, Robert Walker and Ruth Roman. The synopsis. Bruno Anthony thinks he has the perfect plot to rid himself of his hated father, 
and when he meets tennis player Guy Haynes on a train, he thinks he's found the partner he needs to pull it off. His plan is relatively simple. Two strangers each agree to kill someone the other person wants gone. For example, Guy could kill his father, and he could get rid of Guy's wife Miriam, freeing him to marry Anne Morton, the beautiful daughter of a US senator. Guy dismisses it all out of hand, but Bruno goes ahead with his half of the bargain and disposes of Miriam. When Guy balks, Bruno makes it clear that he will plant evidence to implicate Guy in her murder if he doesn't get rid of his father. Guy had also made some unfortunate statements about Miriam after she had refused to divorce him, and it all leads the police to believe that Guy is responsible for the murder, forcing him to deal with Bruno's mad ravings. Oh, wow, that's uh, quite almost giving it away towards the end there, but it's... (laughs) (laughs) Based on a Patricia Highsmith novel or short story, Anthony, because you wanted to mention this, didn't you, mate? Yeah, novel, yeah, which I'd read once and I actually just flicked through it a mm. couple of weeks ago. It's very interesting. It's, it's actually very different. Um, not sure how much of the novel I should spoil, in fact. But um, is, it, want... is it quite different? Is, I mean, the, the premise is obviously there, isn't it? Yeah, the premise is the same, but it's set in the South mm. for a start. And uh, I think, yeah, Guy Haynes is an architect. Right. And he's quite famous. I don't know how famous... The only architect I've ever heard of is Frank Lloyd Wright, just because exactly. Simon and Garfunkel did a song about it. Uh, he's a fairly famous architect, apparently, rather than a tennis player. And uh, it's much more... You know, um, I'm going to guess you've both seen both versions of Cape Fear, have you? Yes, absolutely. We've covered yeah, you know the, um, the original on this show. Yeah, The black and white uh, The black and white version is literally black and white in the sense that Gregory Peck's a good guy, Robert Mitchell's a bad guy. And mm. then obviously Scorsese added a grey area, or added a grey area where they're both flawed. And basically the book is a bit like that. It's a guy who's not the best character in the book, I wouldn't say, but he gradually gets darker and darker. Mm-hmm. And um, I may as well just spoil one bit. I'll go for it. <laughs> he does. He does kill Bruno's father, but just to get Bruno off his back. Oh, but, uh, oh I wish yeah. you hadn't told me that now. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did ask me. No, uh, but, it, but Hitchcock added a lot. I mean, there is a fairground in the, in the book, but there's no sort of carousel and tunnel of love and all that stuff. And That is pure Hitchcock, yeah, though, isn't it? Good. Those sort of things, when we get to them in a moment. I mean, the carousel is is Hitchcock. You know, yeah, that's the, the film is very stagey. The yeah. film is much more stagey, but not in a bad way. It's more spectacular. Mm-hmm. The book's much more sort of a psychological thing. But Highsmith had a funny thing, actually. I think she, she has a very troubled childhood, and she had these fantasies of killing her stepfather. Ooh. So I'm sure she's not the first person. To... <laughs> anyway. And, um, I've uh, never met him, so, you know. <laughs> you're right, yeah. He's probably yeah. quite a nice fella, actually, Steve. Shouldn't presume, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. But... Um, Apparently, she her writing was sort of playing out her fantasies. And actually, there's a parallel with Hitchcock, because Hitchcock actually said, there's a really good book about him called The Dark Side of Genius, which yeah. you try and read. He said, yeah, I, I had murderous feelings. He was obsessed with uh, Christie, you know, mm-hmm. Relington Place. Yes. Because they were born in the same year. And apparently, he his films were kind of him playing out that thing. So, um, Highsmith was apparently, her biographer called her the mistress of suspense, but I don't know if he just made that up. <laughs> Because it fit with, it fit with Hitchcock. But. <laughs> she wrote the um, talented Mr. Ripley and those books, didn't she? There was the series of the Ripley books, wasn't it? Highsmith. Yeah, she created all these. I mean, Ripley could almost be sort of son of Bruno in a way. Mm. And uh, yeah, she she's yeah she created all these dark alter egos basically, which a lot of writers do, I think. Yeah. 
So it's quite a good book. Bit the of a lame ending, there. But... Yeah, the elements are there, but with Hitchcock and and Raymond Chandler, who wrote part of the screenplay to this, you know, you've got to remember it was Raymond Chandler was involved here. So we get a decent sort of like twist on that original story and quite a few differences by the sound of it. Yeah, um, no, the Raymond Chandler bit is him and Hitchcock didn't, by, by all accounts, didn't get um, on and see eye to eye. Right. And one of the things that, you know, close to what you were just saying there about the difference between book and uh, the, the film treatment is that um, Raymond Chandler was wanting to, you know, have a, a script that concentrated on looking at the the inner workings of the characters and yeah. sort of do all that that personality development and etc. Whereas Hitchcock, his thing is wanting to create visual scenes mm. um, and have the the story support that. So yeah. they they didn't see eye to eye, and because you know basically Hitchcock always storyboards the entire thing to death before it's put in the hands of a scriptwriter, and they're just basically adding the dialogue to fit the scenes that he's already written. That's why the Raymond Chandler bit, you know, really they were both saying it's one of the few things they agreed on at the end was that Raymond Chandler's credit shouldn't be on the film. Oh, um, right. because Because he hadn't, you know, the substantially had an impact. He basically rejected and, and not done any of the work he'd done was actually in the film, but the studio wanted... Um, his name to be still attached to it, so that's why he's got a co-writing credit with somebody else who was actually the person who actually wrote the film. It sounds like he wanted a remake, or not remake, adapt the book quite closely then, because that's what the he book did. is yeah. really. Yeah. There's there's low there's pages and pages of character development. There's lots of guy sort of having scenes on his own, and then Bruno having scenes on his own. They're both sort of falling apart. The other thing with the book is that the, the Guy and Anne relationship is explored more and it's a bit more flawed. Because in the film, it's almost perfect. It's you know? perfect almost, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, that, that was the bit that's a bit annoying, actually. It's like, oh, my God, it's just this yeah. whole perfect relationship with a very successful father-in-law and even <laughs> even Hitchcock's daughter, who's normally quite annoying, she was really good in this. She was <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, I was going to say, in, her character in Psycho was just was awful. Yeah. <laughs> Just like really annoying, but she was great. In she this. was great in this. I mean, mm. this was Highsmith's first novel, and yes. basically, I think I read somewhere that when the negotiations were, you know, was being tendered out to Hollywood as a potential, you know, you could adapt this into a movie. Hitchcock deliberately kept his name out of it so that it wouldn't bump the price up. Yeah, and, and right. Highsmith got very annoyed about that, thinking bastard. You know, <laughs> he was like, if I'd have known, you know, and yeah. even before. Chandler came on board. Now, Stephen, you know this because he scream wrote Double Indemnity, didn't he, mate? He was he was all involved in that. Mm, yeah. It's one of your favourite movies, yeah, it was, isn't yeah. it? That's um, one of yeah. mine favourites. It's well. a great, yeah. great film. I think somebody did. I read somewhere that John Steinbeck was approached at one point. Yeah, I've got here Hitchcock wanted Steinbeck. Yeah, seven people turned it down. Apparently, seven. Is it because yeah. is it because it was her first novel? It's nothing to do with Hitchcock, is it? It's, it's just. Because you'd think screenwriters or not, you know, um, novelists would would jump at the chance to work with Hitchcock, or or is he not at that level yet? I mean, Rope was three years before this. He still had he had some cachet in Hollywood, didn't he, Hitchcock? At this I point, I think he'd had a bit of a downturn in his 
in his career that he, he might have been seen as being a bit finished because he mm. hadn't had great the, the the previous films although you know critical critical acclaim and certainly we look on them well um the the box office takings for the previous i don't know two three films or whatever um hadn't really been stellar and mm. hadn't kind of lived up to the hitchcock legend um so i think maybe there was a few people who who turned it down on that basis that they didn't want to be part of that downward slope for for somebody and that to carry them them with it uh and that would you know make some sense in in a way but ultimately it was uh it was taken up by some people who i think did a good, good job so they want the problem yeah mm. there is no problem with the script from what we see on the screen mate. It, it, it's, it's perfectly acceptable it's a very good script actually as well when you look at it there's no no issues with regard to it. it's just the confusion backstage isn't it behind the scenes um it all just sounds a bit messy and ultimately it was the obviously there is a a, a tone within the film with regards to whether there's how women are, are treated and i think mm. this is always a bit of an undercurrent to um hitchcock films because of various uh a different undercurrents but and um, to do with himself and exploring things but i mean this mm. came from a novel written by by a woman and it was then adapted by a, a a woman who then was you know hitchcock hitchcock's wife was involved then as well yeah in so you know those three three women behind this story really so any you know any ideas that there's a women hating or or anything like that living out any of that is not quite true because it's actually coming from women in a lot of ways um it's only it's only hitchcock um, but it's but it's interesting stuff. sorry but it's interesting that the worst written characters are the women yeah yeah right. uh, you think about it miriam I, I couldn't stand her character i, I just couldn't couldn't see how she became the woman she did. I know she was quite scheming, you know, she wanted, mm. you know, just to get his money, not take the divorce and all of this lot. But then her character, when you see her at the, at the, um, at the fair, you know, yeah, surrounded by all these hangers on these guys uh, and the way that her head is instantly turned by the appearance of Bruno, you know, and it's, it's just mm. a little bit, a little bit hard to believe. And, and as you said, um, Barbara, no, not Barbara. That's um, Patricia Hitchcock, isn't it? Ruth Roman and Morton. Um, yeah. Very, very convenient, I think, as you mentioned, mate, isn't it? Because it is just yeah. all too much sweetness and light almost there. Interesting. You're saying you, you're saying you, you know, you couldn't see the attraction, you know, the, why that she was Miriam was was gaining the the attention. I mean, she couldn't, she couldn't see herself. She was put those glasses. She couldn't see, and that's why when she. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, if you if you watch, you can see a lot of the time she's touching things to be able to guide herself because she can't see. <laughs> but um, but I think the the element is that you know I think it's that she's as uh, the Patricia Hitchcock character says that basically she's very seems very open uh, with her, her own her own interactions with, with men and and, mm. and body, and it seems that that's that's the attraction that maybe they're going for is that you know they she's not somebody who um is adverse to promiscuity um yeah. and and that's therefore where it, it comes in which obviously doesn't fit um with some of the others 
that would seem where it comes across and whether you want to get into the psychology of trying to say that she, you know she's got these big thick glasses and and feels that she's needing to reaffirm her attractiveness or you know or whatever who could say the psychology behind that that wasn't it mm. um expanded yeah. upon but but yes yeah, so i can understand that there's a a, a dissonance there uh, when you're looking at her thinking why why is there this fuss I think it's just, I mean, this is just a piece of entertainment, really, isn't it? I suppose the book is where you would do all that. I mean, the book the book doesn't actually talk about Miriam much at all, but if if it did, you know, you'd get probably get all that psychological stuff. Why is she this way or that way? But I don't know. She was she was weirdly kind of attractive, not only just the way she was eating that ice cream, but <laughs> very, very sensual. But, she, uh... She's attractive, but her, char- <laughs> her character wasn't particularly attractive. She's a very nasty streak to her, you know. It's very yeah. flirtatious, and, and it's, it's just the way that literally the appearance of Bruno, you know, she catches him from the corner of her eye. And, and all right, he is sort of stalking her almost, you know, all the way through yeah. the whole scene. Um, but it's like, oh, well, forget the four guys that I'm here with. This guy looks interesting. Oh, wow, he's hit, yeah. he's hit the, uh, you know, the hammer and rang the bell where all my, you know, my hangers-on couldn't do it. This man's probably a lot stronger and a lot more attractive and virile, you know. Um, yeah, it was just just a funny, yeah, uh, funny. That's you know, it. I mean, there's there's not a there's not any any negativity. I think from for, from us with regards to. Her sexuality and, mm. and freedom in that sense it's from the other characters in the film but the way in which um she does have the, the low uh, morals in the sense of the way she was wanting to screw him over with on the side of the divorce and renege on yeah. on on that in order to try and because she found out it was going to be uh, worth something money wise um, mm. that's where it comes in that she's basically throwing it in, in his face and the whole thing that was almost thrown away and not really followed up was the the, the pregnancy mm. thing. Yes. Um, I can't remember. Was, was it established that she actually that was a um, a false thing that she wasn't actually pregnant? She was just pretending she was, or was she actually pregnant? I can't remember. I don't know. Is it actually. resolved? That I don't it, think it is. It was supposed to be with someone else's baby, wasn't it? Yeah, it was somebody else's mm. baby. But I'm just thinking that would have could have potentially been a, another aspect towards in the book at least towards obviously a, a pregnant woman being murdered is more emotive than, than, yeah, yeah, than yeah. a woman being murdered murdered because obviously right. in, in in the in the states they um they value the unborn more than they do the living. So yeah, I didn't I can't remember what the upshot of that was, whether there was actually whether it was just something she she'd been using to get the divorce or whether it was something that actually was real. I I, I forget now. I can't, no, I can't remember. remember. No. No yeah. answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think this film it doesn't it doesn't really go deep into those kind of things. So those are I wouldn't say incidental, but I don't think Hitchcock was about memorable characters in a funny way. Uh, he's much more about direction. He's more of a director than a writer. Yeah. Let's say. Quick, very quickly, guys, the the synopsis on Wikipedia says Guy meets with Miriam, who is pregnant by someone else at a workplace in Metcalfe. Mm. So whether that is a fact or not, it's, it's not actually, you know, it, it's not resolved here. So leave that bit open for the moment. We'll see if we can find something as we go through. Yeah, the script, the script wise as well, because as you were just saying there, you know, Hitchcock is, is more visual than, than script a lot of the time. 
Ruth Roman, who plays Anne Morton, wasn't his first choice. It was Warner Brothers insisted on casting her. They wanted some of their stock um, stock actors and actresses within the movie, and, and she was really forced upon him. Um, and, and as we know, Hitchcock liked to control his leading ladies to a certain degree, yeah. uh, become obsessed with them because this wasn't his choice. There was a real friction between them. You know, he virtually ignored her and, and blamed a lot of the Ooh. film's shortcomings on her. Uh, I think Farley Granger said he, he always had to be having a go at someone. I think he's one of those people. He had to give someone a hard time and it happened to be her, you know. <laughs> I, could, I could see that, you know, him being quite, quite a bully. Yeah. Obviously not Tippy Edrin levels. Oh, God, no. no. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we spoke about the women. Let's talk about the two leading guys. Let's, let's start with Farley Granger. We're familiar with Farley Granger from Rope, amongst other things. Mm. Is he a strong enough character? I mean, at first, William Holden, I read, was going to be originally cast, but they thought that William Holden mm. would have been too strong a character, and I could see that. Mm. William, William Holden, as Guy Haynes, would have instantly dismissed Bruno. You know, Bruno's ideas of swapping murders. He'd have like, told him to get away, go out of it sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas Farley Granger has got that, not saying he's weak-willed, but he's got that element to him where he could easily be swayed into something like this. But there's no hint that he's going to be, really. In, in I suppose no. in the first scene, yeah, he's being he's being nice, but... He humours him, doesn't he? He humours him, yeah, that's mm. it, yeah. But the interesting thing about this, um, I'll just give you quickly my idea for a remake. I don't think this would necessarily be remade, but if it was, if, imagine if it was a pro tennis player now. Mm. It was, you know... I don't know, Roger Federer <laughs> being drawn into a double murder. That's that's pretty hard to imagine. Isn't it? Yeah. But uh, no, the fame the fame part you you could really accentuate that now because obviously fame is very different to what it was in the fifties. Exactly. Um, it yeah. didn't really show that much. It was funny, wasn't it? It was almost incidental that he was famous. It didn't seem to make too much difference. Just a few people recognised him. It was when train. he goes back to his hometown as well. You know, it's like, hey, guy, yeah. what are you doing sort of thing? You know, it was, it was, you know, the small town boy done good almost with that, yeah. with that regard. Yeah. Um, but no, it's because well, no, I, media and fame isn't, you know, like you say, as, to, to that level now. Uh, sorry, he's, yeah. he's at a greater level now than it was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not mad on Granger, but he's all right in this because he's a good, he's a straight man, you know. Um, I think Robert Walker is so good as well. I mean, mm. so good. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- and I think that is, I think this is where it comes in that the the sort of Jekyll and Hyde type situation, and that's what a lot of this is put across a cut in the film. The difference between the two of them and the parallels. It's um, very mm. much about, you know, you can go probably spend about ten minutes um, if you wanted talking about the elements of doubles and and yeah. uh, parallels and you know, I've got a list, that, don't, yeah, I got a list even, don't worry so, um <laughs> but they but it is more the, the, the Jekyll and Hyde and I think it, it it's right that it did need somebody who was um you know less strong um a presence uh, to play Hearn's character um in contrast to what Robert Walker was was bringing to the film because I think if they'd both been more intense energy on it, it wouldn't have, have worked. And I think if they'd both been a bit more laid back, it wouldn't have either. So I think there needed to be somebody like Farley Granger doing uh, the job. You know, I'm not sure whether if you, you know, if you'd switched the two actors round to play the other parts, that wouldn't have worked either. So it's not just, a, a, I think, a, an idea that Farley Granger wasn't 
a strong actor. I think he was doing what was needed for the character. And obviously we've seen elsewhere in other things, his performances. But no, I think that bringing other actors maybe could have done it, but I think I'm happy with who they did end up with, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Even if... um, even if Hitchcock, you know, had other choices originally. Yeah, know. certainly works. I think Farley Granger works in this particular case. It's, it's, it is believable. He's believable as a tennis player. You know, he's got the good looks of, you know, that he's, you know, going to be attracted to a senator's daughter and, you know, yeah. all that sort of thing. It's, it, it's totally believable, I think, having Farley Yeah, all Granger. that stuff is good, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Bruno then, Robert Walker. Yeah, very good. Died, what a lovely man. <laughs> Died <laughs> just after Troubled. the film came out, didn't he? And he was only 32. Was he yeah. only 32? Yeah, he was 32, yeah. Oh. And he was an alcoholic in wow. real life. Okay. And he died, at, I think he'd been tying one on, as they say. Mm. And then someone had given him some sedatives. So he died to kind of a rock star, oh. alcohol plus, uh, you know, downers thing. Yeah, apparently he normally played good guys. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've seen any other of his films. I probably have without knowing it. But trying to think what he's been in. He's, I mean, he's a recognisable face, but I think it's only because of this movie that he's recognisable. That's <laughs> yeah. the thing, isn't it? I'm just looking at his filmography. You probably would have seen him in. Wow, let's have a look. He made one movie after this, which was My Son John. There is nothing really. Till the clouds roll by. We played Jerome Kern in 46, I've heard of. 30 seconds over Tokyo in 44. Since you went away in 44. Wow. Yeah, it's a very. There's about 15 movie credits. Uh, oh, right. right. Yeah. I could. I, I could thought of him. Well, I suppose he's only 32, wasn't he? He's only, yeah, there's some of them. Almost a child actor. You know, in 1939, mm. plays college boy. Boy, uncredited. Um, he's in Madame Curie. Yeah, I think so. If he was thirty-two, yeah, he started as a late teenager. Um, so there's a few like early, early performances from him. Yeah, I think this character is is written very similar to the book. There's not that much difference. And what she does in the book, which is really good, just shows how charismatic he is, which is very difficult to write rather than mm. show on a screen. You know, that he he does have a brilliant way of getting him insinuating himself into people's lives or striking up conversations because he's got lots of stories and stuff hasn't he and, yeah does does the book know. highlight the relationship with his mother at all uh it's a little bit different I, I think the mother character is brilliant in the film i think that's another that's almost a creation because mm. the mother the mother is not as sort of batty in the, in the book <laughs> it's, it's a different relationship it's not that kind of stranger Oh, I don't know. They're almost like lovers, aren't they, in the film in a funny way? Well, they're not lovers, but they flirt with each other. Yeah, because and, it's uh... it's almost that you know the typical serial killer profile. You know, a, a, an yeah. only child living with his mother, sort of thing. You know, and that's where I thought yeah. it was going to go. You know, it was almost. But obviously, he's got a father, the father who he wants dead. So there yeah. is there is that dynamic to it. And the lady who plays his mother, whose name I can't remember for the life of me. She goes on to be one of the batty aunts in Bewitched. She's well, oh, Samantha's right. aunt, and she's always the one that keeps appearing in the wrong place or forgetting a broomstick or whatever. You know, she was always just the dotty aunt, you know, in Bewitched. I love it a bit. You know, great, great performance. I do wish you'd keep your hands quiet. You're so restless lately. I like them to look just right. Did I file them too short? Oh, no, Ma. They're just fine. Thanks. 
What's the matter? Oh, I'm all right. Don't worry about me. But you look so pale, dear. Are you out of vitamins? I took a bottle yesterday, Ma. A whole fifth. Oh, but you have that look, dear. I always can tell. Now, you haven't been doing anything foolish. Mm. Well, I do hope you've forgotten all about that silly little plan of yours. Which one? About um, blowing up the White House. Oh, Ma, I was only fooling. Besides, what would the president say? <laughs> You're a naughty boy, Bruno. <laughs> well, you can always make me laugh. <laughs> now get shaved before your father gets home. I'm sick and tired of bowing and scraping to the king. No, no. Now let's not lose control. Come see my painting. Bruno, I do wish you'd take a painting. Such a soothing pastime. <laughs> oh, Mother, you're wonderful. That's the old boy, all right. That's Father. Is it? Oh, I was trying to paint St. Francis. I thought that was so well written. On one level, she is just a bit batty, but she's actually like t insane in this film. I think the way, the way I mean, the way she can just like explain things away. <laughs> that Bruno, oh, Bruno is a naughty boy sometimes. You know, yeah, this, this uh, is it's the, brilliantly played. That's that's the impression I was getting. Like I say, it's almost that that controlling aspect that that it's the mother whose son can do no wrong and can't see through. Yeah, the dark side that we can all see that is clearly obvious to all of us, you know. Yeah, it's very well done. But yeah, and the Bruno character—it's it's just so interesting. It's like a privileged child who doesn't know what to do with his life. Basically, so he dreams up all these schemes and stuff. Does he work? Do we brilliant. get any impression that he's actually working, or is he just living off the family money? I feel like he's living off some trust fund, doesn't yeah. he? So he's got that remote thing with his father, where the father's. Yeah. The father disapproves because he says, oh, why can't he get a proper job or whatever? Yeah. Or he wants to put away, doesn't he? Yes. Doesn't he want him institutionalised at some point? But isn't it? Didn't they say something that he had been previously? Oh, really? I can't remember. He went somewhere. I think it's implied yeah. at one point that, but by the father, I think, is the one that says, it's a, a the character is very much sort of the playboy type that, as you say, is... is an idler that needs to find things exciting to try and fill his life, which is the whole thing about driving 100 miles in a car, 100 miles an hour in a car yeah. with your eyes, you know, oh, with a blindfold yeah. on and stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, aspiring to be on the first passenger trip to the moon and, and stuff. Right. It's all, it's all like breaking out of of the indolent rich uh, lifestyle. That's it. Um, yeah, yeah, because I mean, to be honest, as you said. The Annan uh, guy, yeah, it's kind of boring. It's too, like you said earlier, it's too perfect, and they are kind of a boring couple. So, okay, I'm not condoning what Bruno does, but in in a film, he's the one that brings a bit of 
life into people's lives, basically. That was another yeah. way they could have gone with it. They could have had Guy as a sort of character who's quite bored with his life, and then this guy arrives. The book is a tiny bit like that. They're quite fascinated by each other. But yeah, the Bruno character, indolent lifestyle enough to be able to put his, his anything else he's doing in his life on hold in order to concentrate on basically stalking uh, Guy in many ways. Um, certainly the, the scene where he's just sat, sat in the, uh, the tennis audience and everybody else is watching the ball go backwards and forwards. Oh, really that's that's, that's a, a you know great visual. But yeah, you know, the way you can follow him around and keep turning up and in the shadows. Um, shows that he's got, you know, he's got nothing else going on that is apart from placating his his mother occasionally um, over her paintings. He doesn't need to do anything else in his life he doesn't want to do, and that again is indicative of, of the character and perhaps why his mind is is fractured in the way it is. I think the thing they could have explored a bit more maybe was how vulnerable Guy is. That's what I'm saying. If you made it now, a famous person is obviously incredibly vulnerable, so they could have really played that up. When I was watching the film, I was thinking, it is really good, but I did have, I had quite a few ideas for what they could have done, which is probably not a good sign. You know? I, I think you're right in saying, though, the pressure of fame wasn't as great back then. Yeah. You know, our idea of like what a famous tennis player would be going through with regard to, you know, media attention or social media yeah. attention is although, completely different. Although in, in this, though, you know, he does get asked by his. Uh, police shadow mm. um he does get asked whether he's considered going professional yeah, so, right. um, yeah. so he's he's he seems like he's um you know a talented amateur that's um obviously getting some money in what, from it but what was not. his answer to that Stephen? because he said no because i'm gonna go and do something what was he said he's he gonna go into politics politics that was it oh, and then that's why so, there's yeah. that's why there's the the bruno accusation with regards to getting in with the senator's daughter yeah. because not only yeah. does she have wealth but also it helps his political career to be able to to um, to get involved in that sense and yeah. um so that's uh, i think where it comes across that yes there is some local fame like you said a good local boy made good yeah but not to the level where it is a a federer or whatever it's exactly uh, yeah that it's makes a, a local yeah. a, a local celebrity that could potentially have gone further into that especially based upon you know suddenly showing a different performance tennis wise for the critical match played towards the end of the film where his, his playing style changes and mm-hmm. he seems to have a lot more success yeah. doing it that way to to be honest is a you know i don't know whether that's meant as a um, a pointer towards um, the fact that the the character has been fairly laid back and insipid in a way, and that yeah. if he, if he does actually show character and show resolve and and put some heart into um, what he's doing, he gets a better result. I don't know whether that's meant to be implied from that or whether that's yeah, just a misreading. I yeah. think there's not there's probably not that depth really in, in the film, perhaps. It's almost like they play down the psychology a bit, really. I think he says, the commentator says, doesn't he, this isn't what Guy Haynes normally does. You get an idea yeah. that his tennis style is very conservative. And then they've got the brilliant thing with the two pairs of shoes at the beginning. Yes. But you can see Bruno's wearing these really flamboyant shoes and Guy's <laughs> gone for the conventional. So, yeah, that's what Hitchcock's very good at, I think giving little signs there. You've got all the crisscross stuff. Do you notice the rail tracks crisscross? Yeah, the, the rail, rail tracks crisscrossing. Brilliant. Um, 
you've got that he um he orders uh when he orders a drink he orders two doubles yeah, two doubles um, oh. and, and says and says that, that's that's the only doubles that i play um yeah. which obviously uh, ties into the tennis but you've got a i won't, I won't infringe upon your um your list underneath uh, <laughs> of these parallels it gets very tenuous because some of it is i think stuff that is the contrast between them like you said with the shoes and some of it i think is bits where they're trying to show them in in play together and obviously in the book you've said that they spend time talking about one character and then there's and we're Definitely. talking about the other whereas yeah. in the film they're obviously switching you know 30 seconds by 30 seconds switching between the scenes with the different music to you know to cover what's going on at the same time and and how they are in parallel in a way as far as um the jeopardy but a different kind of jeopardy in a different way in which it's been been uh, played out as it were so um but in a way yeah that's as i say your your tenuous list <laughs> yeah <there's, laughs> obviously tennis you play doubles two pairs of feet two taxis uh, Hitchcock's carrying a double bass. Then it gets very tenuous. Two women with glasses, oh. two Hitchcocks, <laughs> two respectable fathers, Brunos and Anns. But then you could go on forever, couldn't you? Like, oh, there's a character with two eyes, that kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, no, it's yeah. definitely that theme going on. But then the glass is, is mm. good, isn't it, as well, though? That, yeah. Which is more, more prominent in the film, the whole thing to do with glasses and the, yeah, very the much so. reason why that sets him off the, um, the Barbara. Uh, the Patricia Hitchcock character yeah. that's setting him off the fact that she's wearing glasses um, and you know I suppose if you want to go back to the whole four eyes thing then you've got another double there but um, <laughs> the, the, yeah that's that's the, the the bit where you've got parallels going on and um, sometimes it is contrasts where you've got um, one of them standing in the light and one of them standing in the shadows for Absolutely. example which is, is yeah. um indicative but uh the you know styles of dress like you said that um as well comes into it but um that's why it is in some ways the Jekyll and Hyde thing where there's almost two sides of the same coin we can't mention glasses guys without actually mentioning the murder oh my god what a fantastic does somebody get murdered <laughs> you think what a fantastic scene! I love it. That's incredible. So Talk us through it. It's, it's, the glasses oh, well. are central to this whole murder, aren't they? Yeah. So basically, he finds out Miriam's address. He follows her. She gets on a bus with these two guys. So you're getting this idea that she, you know, she's she likes the men. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think what you're saying earlier, yeah, it's a bit movie the way she's so quickly attracted to him. But there is that great bit where you just see Bruno standing almost to the side yeah and you get that sort of image of him and he looks pretty cool and he's yeah he's very confident and uh, one thing i love one thing i love do you know it's a couple of times he's practicing with his hands like once with the mother he's just sitting there looking bored but practicing <laughs> strangling with his head, or just sort of you know moving Ripping his hands his fingers, around. yeah 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 and um so they go to the tunnel of love which as i said wasn't in the book mm-hmm. and then there's just this fantastic scene and they were told actually to think of it almost like a love scene, which I know sounds a bit weird, but it's that intimacy. And then, so, yeah, so he says, you know, is your name Miriam? She's very turned on and you think, she thinks something is going to happen. And then he just grabs her throat and then it's framed in her glasses, as she said, which is just brilliant. And they just, 
come down really slowly and uh yeah and also the other nice touch is that that, that jaunty songs playing isn't it <laughs> Because we talked, about, you know, we were talking about how clowns in horror films are really scary just because they're clowns, or that that um, doll in that film with the Dead of Night. Yes, it's scarier because it's like, oh, hello, Sylvester. <laughs> you know, it's very jaunty, and it's very interesting that just as she's being killed, the song that's playing is that, and the band played on, which is the one that she'd been singing about ten minutes earlier. Mm. Oh, of course, yeah. It's just very, very well done. I just thought it was brilliant. Yeah, classic scene. And that's the contrast of the music as well, the way the different um, scenes playing mm. into to each other, flipping between the two. But yeah, that mm. scene is absolutely fantastic where, it, again, Hitchcock having this thing where it's about what he's not showing rather than what he is. And mm. fair enough, you see the very swift bit where he you know, just says, your name, Miriam, and as soon as she says yes, the, thing, the hands are around the throat. Yeah. And there's no no preamble there, no, no ability for her to... to to say anything else really but then the way it plays out is obviously the Hitchcockian cinema you know cinematography being great but it just kind of you know leaves an impact upon you um I think for the rest of the film if you know even if even if it's not just uh, a couple of scenes it doesn't and seeing the parallel with the glasses later on and that situation it then triggers and brings back again the way in which that was done fantastic scene absolutely mm. almost worth watching on you know just for its, itself really it's one of those typical scenes that you always associate with hitchcock you know you'll look at that mm. and you'll go alfred hitchcock directed that even if he was watching that as a standalone just piece of like two minutes of cinema you'd mm. instantly know who directed that it's, it's the equivalent of, of the it's equivalent of the the shower scene in psycho mm. isn't yeah 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 yeah. And it's, and it's nice. bizarre because, as we say, this movie doesn't get spoken about as much as some of those other movies. But that scene should be, you know, it should be studied in film class because how they did it, it was it was filmed in a concave mirror. And you, Anthony, saying about how it's almost, you know, direction was to, you know, film it as if it was a love scene. Hitchcock mm. wanted it to be graceful. And his exact words to the actress was, you are to float to the floor. And like so, how on earth do you like your being straight? How on earth can you float? Yeah. And it took six takes when she thudded, basically, boom, crashed down to the floor. There's no cut, try it again, try it. And on the seventh one, you get this almost graceful death mm. in this concave reflection that's then projected into the you know the into the spectacles themselves. And it mm. is just typical classic Hitchcock. It's wonderful. You know, we've seen things like this before. You know, many times afterwards, where you see murders in reflections of windows or mirror or whatever. But this is is just an excellent piece of two minutes worth of movie making. Absolutely. Yeah, the way you said floating, I was thinking, yeah, gliding down. She's yeah. wearing a nice dress, and he's dressed in quite a nice suit. He's weirdly graceful, isn't it? Yeah, that was very, the very strange. He gave, yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about typical Hitchcock. I mean, we get the cameo, which is about ten minutes in. It's not at the beginning this time. He's carrying the uh, what's he carrying? A big cello case or something onto the train? Uh, well, he? it's yeah. a double double bass. Double, it's double bass. Double. The, the double again. You see, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know that scene obviously is where it comes in that there's you know there's actually two directors working on this film because somebody else directs him. Of in course. That scene. Of course. Oh, Patricia. Is, is, it's Patricia Hitchcock, yeah. yeah. But apparently that took three takes and that was it. So it wasn't like, you know, anything expansive. <laughs> but it yeah. three takes just to cover it. Um, with that you know, thing with the yeah. glasses, I would say that's, yeah, that's very Hitchcock. And 
what we were saying earlier when, when he recognises, when he meets a Patricia Hitchcock character. Mm. Uh, don't you see in, in her glasses, you see the lighter come up as it had at the fairground. I think that's in one of the lenses of her glasses. He says, is your name? He has a flashback saying, is your name Miriam? Ah. And you actually see him flick his lighter as he did when he met Miriam, just before he strangled her, he flicked the lighter to get some light. Yeah, yeah. and you expect you expect her to, for some reason, notice that it's not, you know, that it's um, Guy's lighter, but not. Um, oh yeah, of course. But, you know, so you wonder, and there's there's various elements in there, such as when the Anne Martin character is is seeing seeing the the typing with his yeah. name on, which she which she'd seen when he'd come out the shadows at the um, I think it's, it's Congress or wherever it is in Washington where it approached them. So the you know there's these bits where you you're thinking. Are they going to get found out? Is there going to be something revealed in that mm. sense? And each time it's kind of covered. Again, this is something that Hitchcock has done. He's, he's drip-fed all the way through the potential each time for some something to go wrong with the scheme. And mm. you're almost you're almost in a situation where you 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 end up rooting for the bad guy <laughs> because if things uh, do suddenly that you know a pin gets put in the bubble that's the end of the film effectively so you kind mm. of want in, want it to continue so wanting them to get away with it for a little bit longer that's um, it, yeah, which is which is a bit of an odd feeling in you that you're wanting a murderer to to continue to get away with it for a bit further but that's it that's hitchcock again yeah there's that scene yeah. at the end of the murder where the lighter is lying next to the dead body with the glasses and for a minute you think he's not noticed it but he yeah. ends up picking them both up, doesn't he? He takes the glasses and the lighter at the same time. You do have to say, though, how did that lighter stay in his hand after that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was That's a bit true. hard to believe. That's true. And, and somebody just mentioned the, the phrase bursting a bubble. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the kid with the balloon at the fairground. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of sort of foreshadowing that he's... he's... Yeah, he might not be the greatest guy. No, he's a horrible bastard, yeah, basically. The other thing about the light and dark is that Guy, of course, is in his tennis whites as well, isn't he? He's a bit, he's whiter than white, you know? That's true, yeah. Yeah, Bruno's always in the shadows. They put some echo on his voice, was saying, like, Guy, you know. I was was just going to say, the final sort of set piece, again, is typical Hitchcock. It's not in the novel. It's the Mm. carousel, and... You always need to get some little bit of frenetic action towards the end of a Hitchcock movie for some reason. And this is crazy, isn't it? I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, Yeah, it is a a word frenzy, I suppose. A roller coaster, Um, but it's not. But um, it's, you know, it's throwing, and obviously he uses various cinematic tricks to speed up. Um, things and etc but it was very real that the guy who was crawling underneath it was actually mm. crawling underneath it yeah. and you can read and um, apparently that did still upset and worry Hitchcock after the fact that it, it taken such a risk but it is absolutely forcing the the two main characters into a, a face-to-face confrontation whereby other people can't interact and uh, in order to stop it but they are seeing it happen Puts them in uh, in a situation where they are the, the viewer is another one of the spectators stood around helplessly watching this climax, as it mm. were. Because otherwise, if you do have, have to invent some other scenario whereby the, the bystanders couldn't stop it, couldn't move in and 
and prematurely, you know, arrest Guy on the premise that he was mistakenly the killer and not have the outcome that we've got. Um, where right to the end, he's still trying to um, shift the blame mm. and drop a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's quite uh, quite spectacular, isn't it? How did they film that? Wasn't that something to do with miniatures? There's definitely some model shots in there. You can see yeah. that. Uh, and definitely some speeded up and slowed down footage. But mm. it is just frenetic all the way through. And it's just a clever use of a... Oh, not an everyday object, but an object that you wouldn't consider too menacing. It's a kid's toy almost, you know, and it's turned into this object of evil almost. And, and yeah. it almost becomes a weapon itself where the horses are going up and down and they're fighting each other on the floor. And you think that a hoof is going to like crush somebody's head at one point. Yeah. And, and even, yeah. even when the child, you know, who's who's laughing at the beginning because yeah, he's I was going to say he's loving it. He's loving it to start, with, isn't he? Yeah. And then there's that, you know, your heart leaps into your mouth as the child nearly goes flying off the carousel itself as well. Yeah. And as you yeah. say, you've got the added peril of this guy crawling underneath, who's literally about to get his head chopped off at any point as he's trying to cut the power. And even at the end, where the whole thing falls apart and breaks up, how many people would have died in that? You know, it, it's just, yeah. we don't see that collateral damage. But you think there's going to be some serious injuries amongst that lot somewhere. You know? yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know the story that actually isn't true about Hitchcock and his daughter and the big wheel, the Ferris wheel? Oh, yeah, he bet, he bet her that she couldn't sit up there. Was that what it was? Uh, said, st- how much money would you... Would you- need in order to go up there because she was scared uh, of heights wasn't she yeah mm. she says oh a hundred dollars and apparently going up there and they switched off the power for like five seconds to make it even more scary and then um she she reportedly says the the sickest thing about the entire thing was that he didn't give me the hundred dollars that's it it appears in a lot of biographies to this day but a lot of it wasn't true she wasn't on her own yeah. Um, she was up there with, I think it's the two boyfriends that go to the fair with, with Miriam. And and there's even photos of her laughing and smiling while she's up there, you know, even though she doesn't like heights. And as you said, you know, this um, story is always used as a, a typical example that Hitchcock was some sort of sadist. Mm. Uh, and what Patricia Hitchcock said, my father wasn't ever sadistic. The only sadistic part was that I never got the $100. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this biography I read, yeah, it's called The Dark Side of Genius. I don't yeah. know, I'm not sure if I'd agree with that, because mm. some of the stuff in there, I mean, obviously, you know, you never know about, exactly it's it, true. Is it about Scott? Oh. <laughs> well, there's a dark side. Oh, the dark no side genius. of genius. Yeah, there's no genius. Yeah. There's definitely a dark side. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you something. Do you guys know how film strangling is done? How it's done? Yeah, there is a technique for it. Oh right, okay. No, it's okay. where where you isn't it where the thumbs are out on the uh, the neck because Ooh. you can you can strang- you can strangle without there being a danger of actually killing somebody. Um, the, you know you um, if you put pushing in certain parts of the neck uh, rather than on the uh, pushing the windpipe. So if you squeeze you the sides in, rather than the front. If you, yeah, yeah. Oh. You end up, you you end up um, basically causing a closer towards a, a blackout situation. If you strangle somebody normally, it would be uh, you know whether you succeed in in going all the way through with it or not, you you can end up crushing the windpipe and they they suffocate still even when your hands aren't there. Uh, so I've heard. 
Sir, I was just about to say that is the most creepiest thing I've ever heard, Stephen, that you actually know that. (laughs) No, what what I was going to say was that, no, it's pretty simple. I know some people, so I just say that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. No, the the way I heard it is, like, one person, you put your hands around their neck, they put their hands over your hands, and then they push towards their neck and you push against, push away from. Oh, I see. And if you do it very hard, it looks very convincing. I mentioned that because Hitchcock, what, did you go to IMDb trivia? The amount of trivia for this film is insane. There's about 100 pieces of it. No, apparently he used to love uh, um, showing people that. And uh, There you go, it's the use of doubles again, murder. two pairs of hands. There you go, yeah. He talked about <laughs> yeah. murder a lot. Because you get, you get Hitchcock characters talking about murder. What's, uh, what's the one where they're always talking about murder? It's the father and he's got a friend. Oh, it's the Uncle Charlie one. What's that one called? Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow, Shadow of a Doubt or Joseph Cotton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've got the father in this family and his friend, and his friend comes around. All they do their whole time is talk about how to commit the perfect murder. Yes, I know. You and I'm sure it. I've seen that a couple of times in Hitchcock films, people just talking about murder. I think Hitchcock, he he liked the art of it. You know? Yeah, just... like, you say, like you said, this is same as the author of the original book. Uh, this is playing mm. out the scenarios of of murder which Hitchcock obviously was was doing to some extent himself and he did in parallel to what happens in the film when Bruno's at the party talking to the old ladies mm. about murder you know what would how to do a murder um he he did that himself apparently in, in throughout his life talked about scenarios of how to murder somebody maybe uh, that was what he was bringing in himself into the film there as well as the double bass um scene yeah you're right anthony that he, he liked <laughs> he liked to go discuss how how you could do a murder and you know strangling was one of the things he was particularly uh apparently commonly demonstrated to people at parties the similar <laughs> the way bruno did <laughs> yeah it's a... party piece can you imagine it that's brilliant <laughs> yeah i can actually yeah very much so so, yeah, you've got this kinship between Highsmith and Hitchcock, definitely. It's got quite dark characters playing out all their darkness rather than enacting it in real life. <laughs> what did you think of the tennis? Can I ask you about that? Because I'm quite a big tennis fan. Well, the actual playing the, the match the scene, and the, the match way it was done. Didn't really pay a great deal of attention to it. Is there something specific about it? Because I knew that bit was coming up with the audience, whether you know the heads were going left and right. Oh yeah, and I was sort of waiting for that, so I wasn't really paying too much attention to the tennis. Was it a bit false then, mate? Was it a bit? No, well, no. I was thinking because when I was when I was sort of introducing the film the last time we were together, Mm. I was sort of saying, "Oh, you'll laugh at the tennis," but I actually thought it was a bit better than I remembered. (laughs) Did you think it was very genteel, or did it look? it looked quite competitive, didn't it? Yeah, as I say, nothing stood out for me. As yeah, I say, I was yeah. watching the audience I, waiting for that scene. But the only thing I picked up from the tennis because it's not, I'm, I'm not a sportist, no. um, as right. I describe to people. But one thing I, you know, I have uh, been exposed to a, a bit of uh, tennis recently on the television mm. when I've been sat in the room with mm. somebody. Um, <laughs> uh, usually, we're, usually uh, more or less from my back to it, but um, <laughs> obviously the, the same way as they say about any of the sports these days that, that what was the peak performance of it, whether it's it's motor racing, whether it's boxing, whether it's the soccer, whatever. I think the you know it was uh, the performance levels are so much higher things are so much quicker the speed and the power and etc are, mm. are a different level now significantly almost like it's a different game that's true um, whereas 
uh, you know, I looked at that on, I looked at that on the, on the screen and thinking, well, you know, I could play that game, whereas there's no way I could play, <laughs> you know, against what you see at Wimbledon being played or whatever, because this, you know, speed of which they're, you know, yeah. they're hitting hitting balls and stuff where you're going, yeah. oh, well, I, I might actually see, bit, might be able to see the ball coming in if it was played at that speed. He's um, not at the level so, where they're still uh, in suits and trilby hats, though, is it? It's, like, it's not quite. No, right. it's not. <laughs> Who's that, Terry Thomas? You can imagine, it's like, yeah, School yeah. of Scoundrels. Yeah, yeah School of Scoundrels, yeah. <laughs> um, which is I'll do that one day. Oh, yes. um, you know, it's a different level of, of game and, and different style and it wasn't just because it was meant to be in some way amateur. It was also, I think, because indicative of the era, as far as I'm understanding, yeah. with with all sport really. Um, I think the, you know, I don't think there's any sport really that is the same now as was played back then with regards to speeds and power and and etc. So boxing is probably the closest, but in those days, you know, obviously there was bare knuckle originally, but. Mm. The, obviously, the, the gloves are more, more padded now. Everything is safer. But... Yeah. Well, you say that actually, it's apparently worse. Um, having oh, is padded it? Gloves. Yeah, because the thing is, this the this is just I don't, I don't know why I know this when it's considering how little I know about sport. But <laughs> uh, apparently, um, because of the the force at which you would be punching somebody else in the skull, you don't punch them as hard because you're gonna you're gonna break your own hand. Um, if you're gonna put punch them with the same force that you would with um a padded gloves on now. Mm. But the but the impact of it is still um therefore higher now, which means there's more brain damage and, and that kind of concussion and etc. with the brain shaking around than there was when it was bare knuckle where yes you might get some more cuts on your faces than you would previously get, but you there wasn't the internal damage the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so apparently bare knuckle fighting is actually better health wise. Oh it's <laughs> quicker presumably as well. It's quicker. <laughs> yeah you wouldn't expect it? so yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And I like the uh, scene where they're intercutting the tennis with the the lighter in the drain. Yes. Because uh, yeah. that's set yeah. up as Stephen was saying earlier, that's set up because we want him to get the lighter obviously, don't we? So of course you're rooting playing with for the it. audience. Yeah. It's, they, It'd be a bit of a lame ending if he just lost his lighter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that thing, it's yeah. what Hitchcock does. Is is that the MacGuffin? I don't know. You know is, there's so many elements to this that, you know, people don't talk about this movie, as we said. It's mm. it's a shame to say it's second tier because it's it's a bloody great Hitchcock. It's a bloody great film, full stop, you know. Mm. I think the lighter is a way of, t- of tying the characters together that Bruno knows that he's got, he's always got that link to him. Um <laughs> Uh, and whether that's a link to him in an emotional sense or in a, in a sense of blackmailing him into doing what he wants to do. Um, I mean, there is a, a, apparently meant to be some homoerotic undertones towards Bruno's, um, mm. you know, ways he's, he's obsessed with the guy character. But mm. certainly the lighter initially doesn't give it back and leap off the train or, or try and catch him when he leaves it behind at the train. And he, it's almost like... I've still got this. I've still got a you know a, a link to him. I've still got to chase him down for this. I've still got a way of keeping him linked to me and what I've done. Yeah. Where the lighter comes in in that sense, and certainly with regards to the the peril of him trying to finish off the tennis match within a time scale so he can get to 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 sort of prove his innocence. Whereas mm. um, the race against time and they're both racing against each other without knowing it properly that the others. Um, facing a, a, a peril as well of something that's slowing them down 
um, and the contrast in the music and etc. I think again creates this parallel that's uh, again with the doubles. I think obviously you have to suspend disbelief with those timings a bit, don't you? But that's 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 what a master filmmaker does. That's you know, the suspense part of it, isn't it? That's yeah, right. it's exactly yeah. what he does so well. But uh, I definitely would recommend the book if people are interested in this genre, even if you've seen the film lo- lots of times, because I had already seen the film before I read the book years ago. Mm. But it's very, very different. It's really, especially if you like psychology and psycholo- psychological horror and stuff. Okay, we'll give that yeah. a go. And also, mm. you were talking about potential remakes or whatever. There was a remake, wasn't there, in, in the shape of Throw Mama from the Train? Yeah, which you, wasn't bad. You, yeah. you looked at it again, didn't you? Did you say you had a quick look I at did. it? Oh, the, oh, the remake with Snakes on a Plan. These motherfucking, yeah. yeah, these muggles are trained. I was going to say the train works very well, doesn't it, for films? Because Strangers on a Bus just wouldn't have worked. It would though. not have worked. No, no. Well, train, Trains is something that, that Hitchcock revisits a lot, isn't there? Yes. Trains is it's, it's it's a common theme for, for him, so... Uh, we understand why that's there. Yeah, the train goes through the tunnel, etc. It literally does in the does. end scene of North by Northwest. That's literally, it. That's as it, yeah. they kiss, it's it's so obvious. Yeah, but interesting. Yeah, that the second uh, Farley Granger Hitchcock film with a homosexual undertow, mm. which is not really again in the book, it's not not really explored. We don't find out Bruno's homosexual, but there's this, it's more of a fascination, I think. And I suppose it is a bit here. Bruno's fascinated with Guy, but Guy's not really fascinated with Bruno, is he? Probably for the first two minutes of the film or five minutes of the film. You don't really get that sort of mutual fascination. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Granger was famously bisexual himself. Oh, um, uh, was he? Right. I didn't even know yeah. Right. He, he, he kept it a secret, obviously, because, you know, the early days of, of Hollywood and things like that. But... I mean, he was still alive into his 80s, and it was quite well known, I think, towards the end of his life that he was. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Just a little bit of trivia. The the guy he's playing in the tennis match was a tennis pro who coached Farley Granger to make it look convincing, yeah. He's got a great filmography, Farley Granger. It's it's somebody that we only ever associate with Hitchcock movies, to be honest. You know, these these two films, pretty much. There's nothing amazing, but it's quite consistent towards the later part of his life as he's getting older and older there's you know just appearances in probably he probably appeared in a Columbo at some point you know as most of <laughs> most actors did you know yeah. Um, but yeah it's worth checking out if you like a bit of Farley Granger just to see the variety you know the, of the acting that the guy was capable of doing mm. okay anything else anybody want to add before we start winding this up no I think that's about it really yeah I mean, there is so much uh, trivia and stuff around it but yeah let the audience work the rest out themselves. (laughs) But it's highly recommended, isn't it, guys? As we said, it's it's second tier, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's second rate, this movie, at all. That's it. Second tier Hitchcock is first tier, lots of other people. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, it's 1951. That's Strangers on a Train. We're going to take a short break, and Stephen is going to be presenting what we're going to be watching next time.
And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. Okay, everybody, that was Strangers on the Train, Alfred Hitchcock, classic bit of Hollywood there. Uh, that was your choice, wasn't it, Anthony? I think last time. It was, so yeah. It's got to be Stephen's choice next time we meet up. So, knowing our friend Stephen, he's got lists for everything. Is there a stinking pause list of movies, mate? Yeah. Yes, there is, <laughs> to be honest. It's not as um, long as the Real Britannia one, is it? It isn't, no, this, the, the Stinking Paws one is only about 15 long rather than ah. it reaches into triple figures, just oh, the uh, Real Britannia one, so, okay. so we're doing a lot better there. What we got in store, sir? Right, well, uh, we're not really drifting that far away from uh, what we've just done with regards to sort of 1950s uh, mm-hmm. black and white film noir, to be fair, in in this, it's the story of a frustrated big city journalist uh, whose career is, is taking a downturn and, and needs a, another big big story <laughs> um, in order that he can, uh, and unfortunately, then manipulates the situation to try and make more out of it in order for his own personal gain um, and the interplay, therefore, of relations with the characters surrounding the, the traumatic event that's happening with regards to some men stuck down in a cave yes. some man is. so um ah, so this yeah. is this is uh kirk douglas in ace in the hole beneath this sinister mountain a man is buried alive trapped by a cave-in. And from every part of a shocked and anxious nation, the crowds stream to watch the desperate rescue crews fighting against time, battering their way to the barrier of solid rock, while far below, a daring reporter makes his way into the treacherous, crumbling tunnel that is the only lifeline between the helpless victim and the outside world. You'll be out of here by tomorrow morning. No, I won't. I'll never reach me by tomorrow morning. You'll be out of here in 12 hours. Hang on! Kirk Douglas has his greatest role as the reporter who would do anything for a story. Jan Sterling becomes a star of the first rank as the not-so-heartbroken wife of the man buried beneath the mountain. Maybe we'll have a couple of drinks. Maybe you'll even take me out for a big evening, huh? Why don't you wash that platinum out of your hair? Phony, below-the-belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below-the-belt, right in the gut, Mr. Boot. Human interest. Nothing you've ever seen before has the tremendous human interest of Ace in the Hole. For here is a startling story of human emotions and human desires, played against the most exciting fight to save a man's life ever depicted on the screen. Now, when Smollett comes, you can give him your orders. Tell him to go in through the cliff dwelling, shore it up, and get him out fast. Not through the cliff dwelling. You can't get him out that way anymore.
nearly yes. chose this when I selected Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It was a toss-up between the two. Um, and Anthony, you probably don't know this, but Stephen is a massive Billy Wilder fan. So there's sort of a, a method to his madness behind this one because it's, it it's, is. Billy oh, I mean, I am as I am as well. Yeah. It's not a conscious. It's like a, a, a gravitational pull thing that I just find yeah. myself um, unable to to really avoid at some point coming back to a Billy Wilder film, yeah. and um, I've done it before. We um, did Strike 17, didn't we? And, and Double Indemnity. Oh, yeah. yeah. Double Indemnity. Yeah. So, same with the Hitchcocks. It's difficult to, to not feel drawn back to uh, Billy Wilder thing, films uh, repeatedly. I'm just having a look here. The last weekend I've seen Sunset Boulevard, Starlight 17, Spirit of St. Louis, Seven Year Itch, Witness for the Prosecution. Yeah, yeah. I'm like it hot, the apartment. Wow. The apartment is. And, and, and also, which will sort of like strike home with you, Anthony, as well. He was storyline consultant on Mutiny on the Bounty. Oh, was he? The 62 version. Yeah, which is wow. one of your favourite films, you know. They're, yeah, yeah. Each one, there's, you know, from the seven year itch on, even before that, I mean, we covered Sabrina as well, you know. Uh, uh, it just goes on and on. You look back, Ball of Fire, Double Indemnity. Bishop's wife, you know, not necessarily as a director, but the screenplay stuff, you know, his, his fingerprints are over everything throughout that golden period in Hollywood. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, The Lost Weekend, Scott, as well. What did that inspire? I can't imagine. Do you think of anything? <laughs> <laughs> Got it in, yes, right at the end, yes. Go on, tell us what, tell us what The Lost Weekend is. The Lost Weekend is the famous period in Mr. Lennon's <laughs> life in the mid, early mid-70s, isn't it, where he was with... Yeah. Uh, was it not May Pang? Was May it? Pang, yeah. the gorgeous May Pang, and, yes. and hanging, hanging about with Harry Nilsson and all those guys. Yeah, yeah, that was my last weekend. Thankfully, Anthony has got his Beatles <laughs> slash Lennon reference. We couldn't quite get it in in Strangers on the Train, but well, just you know, I didn't pre-plan it because I didn't know we were doing Billy Wilder. Film, no, no, so well done, so, sir. You got it. in Leave there. little space for the magic. <laughs> I was going to say, Ace Ace in the Hole is definitely a movie drone, because I remember Alex Cox introducing Mm. it. So we're back in movie drone territory. Might have been the first time I watched it, I think, and I've only ever seen it a couple of times after that. So I think I've only seen it once, so yeah, it'd be good. Also quite relevant today as well with, you know, manipulation of press and things like that. We're going to have a lot to talk about with this one, I think, and, and... Great yeah. Kirk Douglas as well, for God's sake. You know, we're not going to go wrong with this movie. Get that chin, yeah. Get the chin <laughs> yeah. in there. The film jerks didn't like this, though. The classic film jerks. So if you like not? this or not, no, maybe no. not listen to them. They are allowed <laughs> to. They are. <laughs> <laughs> well, they tore apart Night of the Living Dead, which is one of my very, very favourites. So uh, don't listen to them anymore. <laughs> unless, they are, unless they ask me to come on, of course. Right, before we go, Stephen, could you let the audience know, as if they didn't, about Real Britannia? Real Britannia um, delving into the entirety of what is British film, which obviously doesn't just include the, the main island of Britain, it includes uh, the British Isles as a whole, so we do bring in some, some Irish films, thankfully, which is uh, decent. Yeah. Full, full gamut of films going back to early Hitchcocks and up to date with more ga- gangster films from um, the last 10 years. In between all of that, you've got the, the carry-ons, the normal wisdoms, the kitchen sink dramas, full, full range of what is British cinema and delving into it and really highlighting not just the, the big names in there, but highlighting what we feel is the, the stalwarts of British cinema that are the, the, the common actors that appear. And it certainly shows a diversity that we have within the history of cinema over here and why it's uh, we 
have so much to be proud of really we do our best with that anthony um guests occasionally uh with us which is always a wonderful activity yep. we have other uh, other guests that come on regularly such as when we we're currently working through the uh the hammer horror yep. films there's something in there for everybody if you don't uh, like the particular film we're doing one week um you'll find that there's another film uh, another week that that is more to your taste hopefully um yeah. so give it so give us a give us a listen really and and, and see what we're all about because um particularly the anthony uh episodes and not bad other episodes. Right. when we when we have other people on they're the best ones uh, and the village hall of fame of course is on yeah. yes yes yeah that, i was explaining that on a podcast i was i appeared on earlier this week and mm. I, I just described it as, as a Herculean effort on Stevens' <laughs> part because it, it's just a, a monster we have created that we thought was a bit of fun that has just developed into this wonderful bit of... It's a real good look into the history of British movies because, you know, it's, it's the back background characters we've decided are the stars of British movies, not necessarily the big names that we associate. Apart from ourselves, who really um, knows who Guy Standard even is? Victor um, Harrington and and Victor Harrington and and mm. that like so dear old Marianne um, Stone as well God bless her yeah. uh, yes our, our Duchess uh, yeah and this yeah. is absolutely it there's you know these backbones of anybody who gets more than three appearances in different you know films gets their village hall of fame because they're not grandiose to have an actual hall of fame. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was something I, you know, I took on board. Well, I'd already been started. I took on board in order to um, carry some workload and show that I could actually do some some <laughs> some work because Scott was doing all of the hard work with the the podcast, and I think he's uh, he's quite glad that he doesn't absolutely do spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> could not have carried that on. It would have, it would have fallen by the wayside. 50 episodes ago probably more <laughs> and as you mentioned regular guest on Real Britannia is our dear friend Anthony mm. who has just as many podcasts under his belt as I do tell us all about those mate before we go yes my little podcast network mm. yeah Film Gold what have we done recently Taxi Driver we did mm. Night in the Living Dead as I said earlier Rear Window we did quite recently and you've both been on there. We did Sleuth last year. We did. Yeah. Uh, what else have we got there? Yeah, so Glass Onion on John Lennon, still limping along after three and a half years, <laughs> trying to find things to say. There's um, plenty out there, mate. I'm sure you'll be going for many years. <laughs> well, weirdly, I haven't done uh, many uh, reviews of his albums. So that's a strange thing. <laughs> yeah, well, we branch it out. You were on there fairly recently. We did 1969. So mm. we've got this uh, recurring thing where we actually, the first half of the podcast, we first part of two-parter is actually looking at the year itself and then we go into the John Lennon Beatles stuff and it's interesting looking at the two because you take 1969 which we did yeah you've got a kind of Beatles psychodrama going on on one hand but then you've got stuff like Vietnam and uh, 1969 death. was the most incredible year as we said you know it was it was Woodstock it was Altamont it was yeah, the moon, moon landings. landings everything yeah. was going on in 1969 and and I think we both fully agreed that Altamont was the death of the 60s basically there's this clear division where the 60s ends and the 70s start and it's literally that December day um, yeah but yeah. yeah but even then it was and as people sort of remembered John Lennon and the Beatles were sort of winding down or drifting apart or whatever but the amount of stuff that was going on you know the get back sessions and all of these bits and pieces that we spoke about yeah uh, fascinating period not in Be- just in Beatles history but in history in general yeah 
And I'm just editing up 1968. I've weirdly gone backwards. Strange parallel, because I did 69 with you and you were born in 69. Yes. And I didn't know this, but Matt Williamson from Pop Goes the 60s, who came on to do 68, was born in 68. So there you go. Wow, there you go. But, uh, but that's the way I broadened it out, really, is to look at the, at the period itself and to see these Beatles events that I think are really important in my Beatles bubble. But then compared to Vietnam, are they really that important? Yeah. You know, get back that much of a big deal when you think about well, you know well. Vietnam and Watergate and moon landings yeah I don't yeah. have the answer to that <laughs> <laughs> and then Life and Life Only is uh, my psychology side and looking at alternative media so yeah I've got those three going on there we go well Stephen Anthony it has been an absolute pleasure this Sunday morning chatting about all things Hitchcock looking forward to chatting about all things Billy Wilder next time and mm. Ace in the Hole and Kirk Douglas and all of the bits that go on with that guys thank you very much I'll see you very very soon take care thank you very much bye take care the management of this theatre suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending. Astrid Holmes, that infernal jamboree is worse than two cats on a fence. You dudes get lost now, you hear? Good night, ladies. Good night, sir. When you fail down, try positive thinking. That's what I told the man said. Don't wear a frown, try. Positive thinking, laugh at your troubles instead. You've got to look on the bright side, on hope so much depends. With your confidence sinking, positive thinking helps you on the way, my friend. When things look black, try positive thinking. Treat every season as spring, no glancing back, try. Positive thinking, trust what tomorrow may bring. This crazy world that we live in will keep on spinning round. But with good, strong, positive thinking, we'll get together and life won't let us down. Shut up, you ugly bitch. Oh, shut up, we enjoy it.